All right, I realized we're past time, so we should start. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I am I'm pleased and privileged that you considered this worth your afternoon time in this two hour and 15 minute slot. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. There's some seats down here in the front, there's some seats there in the middle. Uh, I'm Nick Zola, I teach New Testament here at Pepperdine. And, uh, and this is a workshop on the Gospel of Mark. So uh, I have a, a lay of the land that I want to give us. Even though we have two hours and 15 minutes, that's obviously not enough time to work through the entire Gospel of Mark. And so what I've done is I've selected five scenes, or five kind of acts is what I'm calling them, for us to work through together, to think about what, what is Mark doing, what is happening in this gospel, ultimately with the idea that you should be able to, one, implement it in your own life. So think about how does this affect me as somebody, um, as, as somebody who wants to walk with God and follow Jesus. And then also if you are in some kind of ministerial capacity, if you, um, if you serve in your church in some way, to be able to deliver this to other people. So my, my hope here is to equip ministers to be able to teach and preach Mark well. Um, in the past, although not here at Pepperdine, I've taught a whole course just on the Gospel of Mark, and so we work through kind of each passage one section at a time. And so what I've done is kind of condensed that into five key moments, I think, that will help us appreciate what Mark is doing from beginning to end. And you'll see I go a little bit in and out of order here, uh, and there'll be reasons for that. Um, again, ultimately with the idea that you can hear and experience and, and appreciate and then hopefully live out what, what it is that Mark is doing. So let me run through these five acts that I've got for us. Uh, we're going to start with the beginning, because that's a very good place to start, so that'll be easy to go. Uh, and then uh, we're going to do some boat scenes. So Mark likes to put people in boats and likes to unfold discipleship and, who, and the, the identity of Jesus through these various boat scenes. So we're going to track through three different boat scenes. Then we're going to do something that a friend of mine calls Jesus' temple tantrum, the, the clearing of the temple. So we'll do that moment and see the oddity of what it is that Clark does or that Mark does there. And you'll notice that that's out of order. We're going to go then backwards and look at um, what Mark says about discipleship and how Mark is framing the kind of the very end as Jesus is entering into his, his final moments and the crucifixion. Uh, and then we'll get to the ending of Mark. And you may be aware that Mark... The manuscripts of Mark have different endings, and so we'll tackle that problem together, and hopefully you'll understand a little bit more about what, what that is doing. To, to begin with, or here I'll kind of, this, so this is the scheme. We've got two hours and 15 minutes. What that means is if we spend about 25 minutes or so per segment, then we'll be able to get out of here on time, and I might even be able to give you a little break partway through if that's what you need or not. So we'll, we'll kind of figure it out as we go, and you tell me if a break would be useful. Uh, or not, and I'll listen to the loudest people in the room, basically, for that one. Um, before we dive in, there's some things that I want you to understand about the way that Mark is set up, and particularly the way that this class will be set up in terms of what I'm going to deliver to you, because I hope that we will experience Mark differently together right now than, than the way that you normally experience Mark. Um, and I'm, I'm going to jump to the end here to explain that one, uh, and then we'll come back to that. You're going um, to hear Mark today. Hopefully hear it in a different way 
than what you, the way that you've normally heard it. And, and we're going to do a lot of listening exercises, in a sense, because Mark was probably written for performance, or at least the way that people experienced the Gospel of Mark originally was in um, an oral setting. The first century world was uh, a world where literacy rate was fairly low. In other words, maybe 10-15% of the people could actually read or write. And so most of the earliest Christians didn't sit down like we do today and, and pick up a text and read through it and study it and underline it and look at it and that kind of thing. Most Christians experienced the gospel uh, in oral form, in hearing. And so they would come to a, to a group setting like this, probably something about this size, and they would have the gospel performed for them, read to them, basically, but read in an engaging kind of way. And there's all sorts of work and studies that are done to kind of think about what, um, what it would be like to hear the Gospel of Mark, and so that's what you're going to experience today. I have translated different passages um, from Greek um, into English for you, and so it's going to sound different to you, probably, than what you're normally used to. And what I'm going to ask you to do, in fact, is even to just kind of put your text aside and just listen, and then I will put the text up on the screen so you'll be able to see what it is that you've just heard. But I'm going to ask you to engage your ears for this for this moment, and and experience Mark through, through an oral phenomenon in the way that the earliest followers of Jesus would have experienced it. Um, all right, the other things that I wanted to say that kind of go backwards from there is Mark is a foreign text, and that should be obvious to you, but sometimes we think about the Bible as kind of dropping from the sky, and it was written for us to our own time period, and it's not quite true. Obviously, the text is for us in the sense that this is the Word of God, and, and so we are part of God's people, and we can experience it, but this is a text that's written in a different language, written in a different country. It's written thousands of years ago, literally thousands of years ago, and if you just stop and kind of wrap your mind around that for a second, that... Any other text in this world that if you kind of were stopping to think about that, then you'd have to say to yourself, okay, what do I need to know about the world? What do I need to know about the language? What do I need to know about the culture? What are all the things that would help me understand what's happening in that world so that I can literally translate that text into my own culture and world and, and language? And, and so I want us to make sure that we're, that we're tapping into that today, that we're experiencing this text in a sense as a foreign text that needs to be translated on multiple levels for us to experience it well today and to... Um, apply it well today, to interpret it and apply it well. Uh, the other one that I want to say, or two more things that I want to say are, Mark is a gospel that is written by a Christian for Christians. And that may be obvious or not, I don't know. Sometimes I think we, take, uh, we assume that the text maybe is kind of written for evangelistic purposes or it's written to non-Christians so that non-Christians can understand the Jesus story. And we can certainly use it for that. There's no, obviously problem with using it for that. But that's probably not the way it was written. It was probably written with a Christian audience in mind. And so I want us to appreciate that along the way, we're going, there are going to be assumptions that Mark is making about things that we know or things that we have already heard before that we may or may not know. And that what Mark, in a sense, is inviting us to do is to read and reread. That this is a text that isn't to be experienced one time, but to be experienced multiple times in multiple ways in multiple settings. So I want you to appreciate that as we dive in. And then the third one here that I have listed is, uh, I want you to understand that Mark has a particular structure. Mark is intentional in the format. 
And I hope that you will appreciate that by the end of our class today, that I think sometimes we assume that as we read the Gospels, things are just kind of more or less playing out in the way that they probably played out in Jesus's actual life. And that's certainly true you know, to a broader degree. Jesus is born at the beginning and he dies at the end, and so they don't mess with that. But a lot of the stuff in the middle, they're being intentional about. The Gospel writers are being intentional about how they frame and the symbolism that they use and the way that they organize their stories. And so I hope that by the end of our time today that you will also see that, that Mark has been, um, Mark is an artist. Mark has been very careful and intentional about the way he wants to frame this narrative so as to convey certain really deep truths about who Jesus is and who we are called to be in light of who Jesus is. And so I, I lay all that out at the beginning and the last one was just again that you get to hear the Gospel of Mark in my own translation that'll sound different and so be ready to experience that. Um, the way that Jesus says this is, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So, so I will say that to you, and, and we will dive in. I am happy to stop at any point with questions uh, as things come up, and so we'll do that, and I'll be, in fact, asking you a lot of questions along the way. But I want this to be interactive, so, so do you know, ask me what is beneficial to you. Don't, don't let me stand here and just talk to you the whole time. Let me pause there. Are there, are there questions so far, anything that we can uh, go over that I can explain better, clarify before we continue on? Okay. All right. So here's what we're going to do then. Uh, we're going to start with, and let me see how I set this up, right? So we're going to start with what I'm calling Act 1, the beginning of the good news. And I'm, I'm going to read to you the opening section of the Gospel of Mark. And again, what I'd like for you to do is put your text away or just put it aside. You don't have to close it, but, but don't read along with me. Listen. Listen and experience how, how the beginning of Mark begins. And along the way, for each of these acts that I uh, have set aside, I'm going to ask you this question, what did you hear? I'll, I'll ask this, for this first one, I'll ask it after a, a second question. I have an, an opening question first. But, but be ready to answer that. What did you hear? There will be words that will sound different to you. There will be connections that you are making. Um, and so I'm... I, I, I'm I'm welcoming your feedback and kind of your interaction for this exercise because I think that's what, that's what will make this learning process good for us. Okay, everybody ready? I'm going to start my 25-minute timer now so that we can try to make it through. So we're going to try to take these each in 25-minute in segments, see if we can make it or not. Here we go. The beginning of the good news of the Anointed One. Jesus, the Son of God. Just like it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I'm sending my messenger before you who prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the washer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a washing of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being washed by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he was proclaiming, one stronger than I is coming after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I washed you with water but he will wash you in the holy wind. Well, in those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee came down and was washed by John in the Jordan. 
And immediately, while he was coming up out of the water, he saw the sky being torn apart and the wind, like a dove, coming down into him. And there was a voice out of the sky, You are my precious son. I am well pleased in you. And immediately the wind drives him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tested by the accuser. And he was among the wild beasts, but the angels were serving him. And after John was handed over, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and trust in the good news. All right, that is our first segment there, and I'll show at least the opening. This one is a long one, and so I've got two slides for this one, so we can jump back and forth as we need to in terms of which part we want to talk about. Uh, as I said, each time I'll ask you this question, what did you hear? So, so get ready for that question. But the first question that I simply want to ask you is this, where does your story start? Each of us has a story. There's a, there's a reason or a, you know, a path through which you have arrived here today. Your story didn't begin today. Your story is ongoing. And I'm interested to know, where did, where did your story start? And you can answer that in lots of different ways. But turn to someone next to you, and for maybe one minute or so, so like 30 seconds each, just a little bit more than that, just, just share, with, share with somebody an element or two of where your story began. Where would you see the origin of your story? So have that conversation, and we'll come back together in a minute. If you haven't switched yet, make sure you switch partners now. Let somebody else share their story. not enough time to share your whole story, but wrap that conversation up. Okay, hopefully, just for a few moments here, you were able to tap into a little bit about your, your origin story and kind of where you came from and how you've gotten here. And we don't have time to share those stories, although I'd love to hear those stories. And I hope, again, that you're able to kind of just remember some rich moments or some people who've come before you. But my point in bringing up that idea is to say it's, it's evident or should be evident that the gospel story doesn't begin here. 
right? In fact, that Mark is kind of odd among the Gospels because he starts right in the middle of a story. That, that we're suddenly in the middle of John the Baptist's ministry, or John the Washer, as I've called him, right? In the middle of this guy's ministry, but you're not told who John the Baptist is. You're not told who Isaiah the prophet is. You're not really even told who Jesus is, but you're kind of expected to know some of these things. And the way that I think of Mark is Mark is kind of like this moving train. And this train is speeding along, and you're just kind of walking along, and then suddenly you get, you know, you're, you're coming onto this train, and you're, and you're running alongside with the train, and now you're on the train suddenly. And you know that there have been stops on the train long before you got on, and that we're going to discover pretty soon, you know, that you're going to get pushed off this train abruptly somewhat as well, and the train will keep going after you. But, but the gospel story, you know, starts earlier in this and continues on beyond this, but this is the story that Mark wanted to tell. And as far as we know... Uh, at least as we can tell, Mark is the earliest of our written Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of those four, Mark is probably the one that was, that was first written down fully, at least in the form that we have it in. And, and so Mark doesn't have kind of a precedent to say, like, well, how did Matthew do it or how did Luke do it? He just, he, he comes up with the way that he wants to tell the story, and this is where he starts. So he starts the story in the middle of John the Baptist's ministry, and he's got this opening line here, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the anointed one, son of God, which if you're in an English, you know, literature class or composition class, you'll discover is, is not, is not a complete sentence, really. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd say rewrite or something like that for my, for my students. Um, but that's, but that seems to be what Mark is doing, that this isn't even exactly a sentence, it's almost a title, that this is, this is his heading for what it is that he's doing with this story. And so I, I wanted to lay that out there for you and to help you appreciate that Mark knows that the story started earlier than this and the story goes beyond this, but this is the part of the story that he's telling. This is the part of the story that we're entering into together. And so Mark invites you, I think, into this ongoing narrative as, as we go. Okay, that's what I wanted to at least begin with. Now I will ask the question that you will get tired of me asking, which is, what did you hear? What stood out to you? What would you like to comment on? We'll work through some things. Go ahead, please. I've heard about the holy wind. Yeah, I, I knew someone would say something that. All right, so here's what I'll say, and this, I've got notes that I'd like to get through, but I'm hoping that you'll bring in new things that you want to hear too, so we'll kind of work through with the time that we have for each set of these passages, whatever is interesting to you. Um, and I'll, I'll confess and admit at the beginning now, I am wholly dissatisfied with every word choice that I make in this, in this translation because there's always, a, there's always a different nuance that I can't get across. There's always something that I want to say that I can't say. English simply does things differently than Greek, which is true about every language. It's not a fault of one language or the other. And so what am I doing with that? Well, so in Greek, um, maybe some of you know, there's this word panuma, which is spirit. We usually translate it as spirit. I, I don't love that word because spirit for us means something kind of ethereal and funny and far away. It's like this soul or this kind of thing that's non-corporeal you know, and that does no body or substance in us. And that's true. That's not, that's not wrong. But in Greek and in Hebrew as well, the word panuma, the word for what we translate as spirit, had multiple meanings. And it could also mean breath and it could also mean wind. And, and this is really true when, um, this is the wrong gospel, when you think of, uh, of John chapter 3 and the, and the moment that Jesus has with Nicodemus and this pun that he makes there where he says, the, you know, the spirit blows where it wills or the wind blows where it wills. And so is, that's true for everyone who's born of the spirit. And Jesus is having fun with language there because it's the same word in Greek. He's saying the, the wind blows where it wills and so is everyone who is born of the wind. The breath blows where it wills and so is everyone who is born of the breath. And so when you hear this idea of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
in the text, in Mark and in everywhere. What you should really be imagining is not like a ghost or something like that, but you should be imagining the breath of God, that, that at the beginning when God breathes life into Adam and Eve, God is breathing God's spirit into them, God's breath in them. And that's, that's the holy thing that is coming down into Jesus. But again, it's the same word that they will use sometimes for wind. And so when you imagine and feel the wind that's brushing by you, then you can also feel God's spirit brushing. And there's something that's neat that's happening in this passage where Jesus looks into the sky, and the sky is being literally torn apart. And did you hear that language there, torn apart? That's significant, I think, because Matthew and Luke don't use that language. Matthew and Luke are very content with opening the sky. But Mark wants to rip it up. Mark wants to rip it open because something important is happening. The, the realm that separates us from God is, is deteriorating. That the, the kingdom of God is entering into this world. And, and there's, there's a rip now in space-time where God's realm is flooding into our realm. And so I think Mark is, Mark is aware of that language and is doing that on purpose to give us the, the, the picture that we're supposed to imagine of the, the, like a rush of wind, the breath of God that is coming from God's realm down into this realm, and God is breathing God's spirit right into Jesus, and Jesus is, is being immersed, is being washed by this breath of God. And so that was a really long explanation for why, why I chose wind. Wind is maybe not the best. Maybe breath would have been better. And, and holy, I, you know, holy means set apart, but I can't find another word in English other than holy, and so, so I've stuck with that. Yeah, what else did you hear? The same word that's used when God breathes into the nostrils of Adam, and Adam becomes um, a living being. Yes, it, there are two words in Hebrew, and in that particular one, in, in, uh, in Genesis, there's a second verb that is being used. Now, remember, Genesis is written in Hebrew, and this is Greek anyway, so, so what does it mean to say it's the same word? Is, but the concept is certainly the same. And if you go to like Ezekiel, for instance, and you think of the dry bones, the valley of the dry bones, and God is breathing life back into them, that's the same word in Hebrew, ruach, which is the spirit, this breath of God. So yeah. a different word. Uh, well, no, it's the same word here. Genesis, there's a slightly different verb. So Genesis, Hebrew has two different verbs. But, um, but the concept is the same. The idea is the same. They're synonyms for, this, for the same idea. Yeah. Yes? The, the reader in me and the theater geek in me. Yeah. When you're reading it and when I'm reading it visually, it's almost like I'm reading a screenplay for an opening scene of a movie. Hmm. It's like it's setting the stage. stage. Yeah, it's, you, you're dropped into the middle and also, which makes sense because as you said, it was meant to be passed on orally. Yeah. So really thinking about the power of the wind, which is a, which is a force that directs you. Mm-hmm. The wind directs things. It pushes things in a certain in a certain direction. Yes, and that to me is powerful seeing that um, because it just sets that up. It sets that up that something's getting ready to happen where a direction is going to change for everybody. I appreciate you bringing that aspect out specifically because there's this moment where the spirit you're probably used to, right, sends Jesus out to the wilderness. But when it's the wind, there's something else that's happening, right? The, the wind is driving him out. And, and I want to be clear, it's the wind of God, right? So it's not just like a random, you know, storm gale or something like that. This is the Holy Spirit here. But it, but it, it changes the sense when the sky opens up and the wind comes down and then drives Jesus into the wilderness. And this verb, driving out, is the same verb that Mark uses for when Jesus drives out unclean spirits in people. And even think about that, 
that un I'm saying the word unclean spirit, but you could think of it as an unclean breath. That there's a, there's a, there's a foul breath inside of people that Jesus whoosh, drives out and the breath leaves them. And it shows that Jesus has power even over these unclean breaths. Yeah, in the back. What version is that particular text in right now? This is my translation. This is the, the Nick Zola version. Uh, yeah, so you will, you will not find this in your, in your bookstores anytime soon. So, uh, yes, Ed. You changed the denomination of John. He's no longer a Baptist. Right? I took, I took that away from, from him. Yeah, this, I mean, as, as many people in this context, I imagine, will know, right, that this word baptisma or baptizo has, has to do with dipping or plunging or immersing. There, are, there was a while where I had John the Immerser, and it just sounded, it just sounded weird to me. Um, but it wouldn't be inaccurate. Um, bap, bap, Baptist is obviously a transliteration of a Greek word, so it doesn't mean anything to us in English except in, in the religious context that we hear it. And I wanted to convey, and so my, my goal for this translation for this exercise for you is I want you to hear this the way somebody in the first century would hear it, as best as we can do, which we can't obviously fully do. But so words that aren't religious, I try to make non-religious. So ba baptism is not a religious word for them. It just means they take a cup and they baptize it. That's, that's how they wash it. That's how they dip it. They clean it. They wash it out. So I went with washing here because I want to convey the idea that you're being washed clean of something and that, and that you're you're being expunged in a sense, and, and there's something that's valuable of that. Andrew, is there more you wanted to yeah, say? Yeah, so were you tying like kind of the physical act with the spiritual significance of that? Right? Yes, right, and, and it, the text is explicit. It's a, it's, a, it's a washing of repentance for forgiveness of sin, so you're, you're made clean in this, in this act in some way. So I wanted to convey that. Yes? Can I talk about the second, the, the second part? We can talk about anything you want to talk okay, about. Okay, I yeah. don't want to be on this part. I want to be on this oh, part. Oh, oh, like go back. Um, <laughs> Here, yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, thank you. Mm -hmm. it, um, up near the top, it says, like a dove coming down into him. Yeah. Okay, I'm bugged by the into him part, I think because I'm used to hearing on him. And when I hear into him, I think that it wasn't in him before. Uh-huh, okay. And so I'm bugged. Yeah, all right, good. Uh, I appreciate your notice of that subtlety because I didn't, um, I thought, well, we'll just skip over that one because no one's going to care about that. But, <laughs> but, but you care, so that's good. Sorry. No, it's very good. Uh, what, what, so what's happening here is not unlike the ripping of the sky, Matthew and Luke have a pawn. And that's the normal way of talking about the Spirit coming on people. If you look at the Old Testament, for instance, that you usually see, this is called a preposition, so you usually see the preposition upon. The Spirit came upon them. This happens to prophets in the Old Testament and other people. Um, Mark, as best as we can tell, manuscripts sometimes vary on this, but the, but the manuscripts that seem to be the ones that are probably conveying the, the earliest text that we can reconstruct, Mark uses the word into. So this isn't me, this is Mark. Not every translation will, will bring that out, and so some translations don't think that that's significant or that into and upon perhaps are synonymous. But given that Matthew and Luke have a different word here, I decided to, to stick with it. And I, and I think what's happening here is that, again, Mark is trying to intensify this moment. I don't think he's trying to say Jesus didn't have, you know, kind of the approval or the breath of God beforehand in the same way that that like all of us, when we breathe, have the breath of God, right? Like everybody who's born has the breath of God in them because that's what it is to be alive. But, but I think Mark is saying that something 
Something special happened in that baptism. The breath of God came down into Jesus. And now Jesus is, you might say, possessed with the breath of God to enact God's, God's work and God's kingdom. And it's part of what Mark is trying to do, which is to create this, this break, is to say, look, the, the kingdom of God has invaded into this world, and now watch out. Watch out, because God is here. So, so am I answering your question there? Yes. You're highlighting, this will be a total aside, but you're highlighting something that did make early Christians uncomfortable, which is that sometimes early Christians wondered, was Jesus already the Son of God before the baptism of Jesus, right? And, and there were early Christian groups who read passages like this, particularly Mark's version, because there is no birth narrative, right? And they said, well, look at that. Like, he was a guy, and then he had the Spirit come down on him, and now suddenly he's the Son of God. And, you know, language like, you're my precious Son, makes us ask the question, was, was Jesus already God's Son before that? that? That obviously is answered by later Christians. It's answered by Matthew. It's answered by Luke. It's answered by early Christians who say, no, Jesus, you know, Jesus was part of creation. Jesus was an instrument in creation itself. Jesus was there in the beginning, if you read the, you know, the Gospel of John. And so the rest of the text clarifies that for us. But yeah, if you're just living in Mark's world, you, you're, um, you're liable to raise questions like that. And they're not bad questions to ask. These are the things that early Christians really wrestled with. All right, yes. Yeah, um, you are my precious son. I am well pleased in you. Uh, was that spoken in Aramaic? Hmm. And isn't Aramaic just a vernacular form of Hebrew? Is it distinguishable between formal Hebrew, which is kind of the religious people's language, and the common person's yeah. Hebrew? Yeah. Aramaic and Hebrew are related languages, but they're not the same language, and it's not just a spoken dialect of Hebrew. They're, they're, they're connected but separate. Um, you can kind of think of them as kind of on a family tree together, basically, but, but different, different languages. Uh, it's an interesting question that you're asking because the Gospel of Mark, unlike the other Gospels, uh, Mark enjoys inserting Aramaic phrases here and there. Not very many, but there are a few. We won't do any today. Um, but you can probably remember some of them, like Jesus said to her, Talitha kum which means little girl, you know, rise, basically. Um, and, uh, and obviously what Jesus says at the, on, the, on the cross, right? You know, lama, lama, sabachthani, um, uh, Eli, um, and so, so, there's, so there are little Aramaic phrases. This line is technically Greek in the sense that in the Gospel of Mark, it is the same Greek that the rest of the narrative is in. If you're asking me, if we had had a video camera, you know, at the baptism, and we'd been recording the voice that came out of the heavens, what would what language would we have heard? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. Aramaic, I suppose, um, but it is, um, you know, it's a it's it's part of a psalm, uh, and and so it's it's in it's connected to the Old Testament. So maybe it would have been Hebrew, or maybe we wouldn't have heard it at all. Maybe this is something that only Jesus heard anyway. And in that sense, maybe it's not even in a language. I don't know, you know? So, um, so I don't know how to answer that question, but it's, but it's an interesting one. Yes? As I listened, I heard a, a rather detailed description of John, and then you end with, he handed over, what, what, what's happening to him? I kind of like this weird guy. <laughs> what's going to go on? Yeah. Well, and so that's one of those funny things where Mark, again, kind of expects that you know something of the story that he's not telling you. Now, he will tell us, actually, but he'll do like a, like a 
um, a flashback, basically, in a sense. Um, but yeah, he says, and after Don was handed over, as though you know, and that just means arrested, but it's, you know, I've kind of tr translated it in a slightly different way, but like, so presumably, if you're part of a Christian community, you know that John has been arrested, and you know the story of John the Baptist, but Mark just kind of assumes that you know that, and that that is the precursor to Jesus beginning his ministry in some way. So, all right, I see other hands. There's a few things I want to say to wrap this section up, and then we're about at our 25-minute mark, and so we should move on to the next one. There's a, there's a couple things that I think are important for you to understand, just in general, that you will probably hear a lot in this. One, your English translations, not for any fault, but just because the, they are written by people who appreciate good style and, and who have certain kind of ways of translating, will often change the way that Mark reads in a more literal sense. Mark does a few things that I want to highlight to you that you heard a little bit here and that you'll hear more along the way, so I want to just kind of let you know ahead of time. Mark does something that we term, um, he uses what's called the historical present, which means that he'll be telling a story in the past tense, and then suddenly he'll shift into the present tense, and then he'll shift back into the past tense again. And he'll go back and forth between present and past. And again, if my students do this, I tell them, you know, stop, like verb, verb choice. Like choose one, one tense or another. You're, you're mixing tenses here and you can't do that. But Mark's allowed to do it because he wrote the Bible. So, so we let him away. <laughs> let him go with this. But what, it, but what it does is it brings you, I think, it brings you into the narrative. It draws you in. And we still tell stories like this a little bit. Like if you tell a good joke or something, right, you can imagine someone, well, so then he says to me, da-da-da, and then I say to him, da-da-da. And it's not like you're not saying it right now. You're, you're retelling something that happened in the past, but you're talking about it with present tense. And Mark does this as well. So I want you to be hearing that and maybe even hearing the moments that that happens. Yeah, you want to? Uh, David, uh, for his seed, Christ will come, and uh, beloved, for the Hebrews, it means David. And he says, uh, you are my David in whom I'm, I'm pleased. Oh, okay, yeah. So you're drawing on this, you are my precious son, and bringing in... David, he couldn't uh, edify the temple. Yeah. And in this David, he is pleased. Very good. It's and we'll, bring, we'll come into um, the Jesus' Davidic identity later uh, as well. The, way the Spirit is coming on him because he's anointing him. Yes. Yes, yeah, which is, which is what happens to David as well. Um, let me keep going here, sorry, Mark, and we'll, I'll get back to you. Um, another thing that I want you to hear is Mark, there's a particular word that Mark really loves, and he already came up twice in this passage, or maybe more, I can't remember. It's two right here. Uh, immediately. Mark loves this word. In, in English, you might say, oh, this is not very good style, Mark. Um, but but what, is it, what does it do? It, it, it draw, again, it draws you into this narrative. It makes this a narrative action-packed, fast-paced. And the other thing that Mark does that's kind of connected to this is Mark starts every sentence, practically, with the word and. And, and your English translations will not do this. You will basically, even the most literal translations will refrain from doing this most of the time because it's just bad style in English. We don't like starting sentences with and. I've kept it in a lot of the time. Sometimes I shift it a little bit to a different word just because I can barely stand it myself. But, the, but almost every sentence starts with that. And again, it's part of Mark's like, style. This is how he draws you in. Angie's did this, and immediately we went here, and immediately we went here. In chapters 1 through 10 immediately shows up on average three times per chapter. But then that's what's interesting because if you notice and start counting things like that, starting from chapter 11 on, it immediately still shows up. He can't let go of it completely. He loves it too much. But it only shows up on average about once per chapter from chapter 11 on. And that tells you something about what we could call narrative time. That from chapters 1 through 10, Mark is, is speeding through this narrative, getting you 
to the cross. And then when we get to the cross, Mark is elongating time, slowing things down. Things don't happen right on top of each other in quite the same way. In fact, Mark has every single day laid out of the last week of Jesus' life, more so for, perhaps than any of the other gospel writers. Um, all right, uh, Mark, did you want to um, jump in there? Question. Um, I think of the word repent as a religious word ah. as a, and not as a, not, not a typical word that people would use in life. And my under, I'm wondering if that's the case in the Greek <laughs> or, if, or if this would be better translated as you know, change your minds or whatever. Thanks for pointing out my failures there. I appreciate that. Yeah, you have no idea how long I've wrestled with this word in particular mm-hmm. to find a single word that can convey and change mind change is something that the difficulty is and it's you know it's like this text up here where did it go right so how do i get a sentence that says the washing of blank for the forgiveness of sin and get a word there that would mean what a full idea of a change of mind that leads to a change of action you know in, encapsulated in a single word is so if you have suggestions i i welcome them <laughs> But I couldn't come up with anything, and so reluctantly I just left repentance in for this time around. But I'm I'm still wrestling with that, uh, and I've I've had a, I've had different words in there at various points. But I appreciate you asking that. So I think we need to move on to the next section. But but we'll but we'll come we'll have lots more time for questions. Okay. So that was Act One, and we're we're more or less on time. We're going to move over to Act Two now, and Act Two is going to be a series of passages. Three different passages that we'll do together, all boat scenes. For the sake of time, I'm, I'm just going to summarize what happens in between the boat scenes because we just don't have time to work all the way through, but you know, someday we can, we can do a, a one-week class or something on this. So here's what has happened right before the first boat scene. Uh, Jesus has done the parables. Uh, so there's a whole chapter in Mark on just parables, and there's the parable of the, of the farmer who scatters seed. We call it the parable of the sower, um, and, and then several other parables, and, and Jesus roots his teaching in understanding these stories, these parables, these comparisons well. And he's, he's trying to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And after he finishes that, remember he says this line that I've already said before, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Right? So tune in, pay attention. This is important stuff. Right after that last parable, then we get to the very first boat scene. And that's the end of Mark 4. So I'm going to do the boat scenes one at a time. So I'll do this one, then I'll ask you what you heard, and then we'll go to the next one. So here is boat scene number one. And when it was evening on that day, he says to them, let's go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they take him as he was in the boat. And there are other boats with him. And there was a great windstorm. And the waves were crashing into the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they wake him, and they say to him, Teacher, doesn't it matter to you that we're dying? And getting up, he reprimanded the wind and said to the sea, Be silent. Be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you wavering? Don't you have trust yet? And they were very afraid. And they said to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? So that is scene number one. What did you hear? 
reprimanded. Okay, reprimanded, different. I don't love that one either. And so, I don't know, is, is rebuke, rebuke feels religious to me. Rebuke feels like we don't really use that word outside of religious context. Reprimand probably is no less religious in some ways, but it was different, it was different. It's like a parent. Right, that's what I was trying to, to you know, I, it's hard for me not to think of the Little Mermaid, do you know that, that, that song which says, but they don't reprimand their daughters. Uh, you know, she's imagining, so I thought, well, at least, you know, if Disney can throw it in a song, then I can throw it in my, <laughs> my translation. Um, so yeah, maybe not as, as common, but it's, it's rebuke, it's admonish, it's reprimand. Jesus is, yeah, it's what you do to a three-year-old. Jesus is, is telling the wind to stop. And again, it's the same thing that he will do to um, unclean breaths, unclean spirits. It's the same thing that we'll see in a, in a next passage that he will do to Peter when, when Peter goes the wrong direction. And so this is part of the, an ongoing vocabulary that shows up all over the Gospel of Mark. All right, what else? What else did you hear? Yes. These are all experienced fishermen that are in the boat. Yeah. And um, they're terrified of the wind. They think they're going to get swamped. And in verse 41, they said they were very afraid. So which were they most afraid of, Jesus or the storm? Yeah. I mean, it Fe was a, a miracle of a different proportion. That before, it might have been spirits or something, but here it's nature itself that he's ordering around. Fear is acting at various levels in this passage, and I appreciate you noticing that because they're, they're afraid of, of the elements but at the end, they're afraid of Jesus himself, almost, and Jesus' identity in some ways. Mark, I saw your hand up there. Uh, wind again. Yes. I knew someone was going to bring that up. And so, so let me, so no, it is not the same word. Wouldn't it be beautiful, though, if it were? That'd be pretty neat, right? Um, just like in English, you know, Greek has various synonyms. And so this is a different word for wind than the word panuba, the word for spirit. And that alone may be enough for me to then go back for the first passage and translate it as breath or something else instead so as not to accidentally make a connection here. But, but conceptually, it's not far off. Like conceptually, it's still, the, it's still the wind of God in the sense that is, that is enacting and that Jesus is now controlling, that Jesus has, has power over. And so in that sense, I think, I think you can still draw some lines, but diff two different words in Greek, so let me, let me make that clear. Yes? In Israel, at that time, nobody goes to the other side of the map. Uh, second thing, uh, for them, it's unclean to go to those other nations yes. of the capitalists. And uh, he's showing more power than Moses when he's doing this. Moses had to pray for these two things to happen. Yes. He's just doing it yes. as God. There is a lot of comparisons between Jesus and Moses, and in fact, in the story that we're about to get to next, although we won't read it, the story will summarize next, there's some direct comparison with what Moses is unable to do for the people and what Jesus can do for the people. And so Mark, the, the, the reason that I start with this passage is our second passage, is because this question here at the end, who is this? This is the question that Mark is forcing us as hearers to ask over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus' identity? Who is this guy? And here, nicely, the disciples ask explicitly, who is this? Who is this guy? He can control the weather. There's something different about him. But, but that's supposed to be the question that we're asking over and over and over again. Who is Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? So, yeah, Tyler. Um, the word wavering, I was wondering why he chose that. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I think the, the the normal text for that is doubt. Um, I think I have this one open right here. Um, in fact, so where is it? Um, da -da 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 -da. Yeah, why are you afraid? Oh, you know, you're right. Why are you afraid? Yeah. So um, I have to look. I'd have to go back and see what what passage it was there, what word it was. But I wanted to I wanted to convey the the wavering of the waves a little bit and kind of the sea imagery that's happening there. And, and then contrast that with this idea of, of trusting. And you, you know, you'll notice along the way that I've, I've let go of words like belief and faith and, and believe. Not that those aren't good words, they're fine words. But, but I'm, I'm trying to get you to think about the weight of what it is to put one's faith in Jesus. That it's not, this is not an intellectual, I think that he's a real person situation. But this is a, this is a trust. This is a commitment that, that Jesus is asking for, that the disciples aren't there yet. And so I wanted, I wanted you to kind of see the elements of that. So yeah, so thank you for that. Uh, yes, in the back, yeah. yeah. I think the word yet struck me because it was like there was an expectation of Jesus, that Jesus had for them. Yeah. That, wow, all this time and yet, you still don't trust me. Uh-huh, like you've seen, you've seen some things. And Jesus, we, you know, we didn't go over it, but Jesus has healed people, he has driven out you know, unclean spirits, like they've, they've already seen some stuff and, and yet still they're not, they're not there yet. And that's, that's the other kind of ongoing story that is taking place in, in the Gospel of Mark is this inability for the closest followers of Jesus, the people who have the best access, who get the inside version of all of the parables and the stories, who still can't see who he is, who still can't appreciate his identity and who wrestle and struggle and who constantly get it wrong about about who Jesus really is. So, yeah. Um, also, it, and we didn't kind of take him as he was in his boat, and there were other boats with him. So there were other boats out on the lake at this time, too. And so when they say, teacher, does it not matter to you that we are dying? They're, I really think they're not necessarily talking about just them on that boat. Because they're like, dude, come on. We just sat there and did all this. Do you not care that the other people are, you know... Yeah, there's a whole fleet. I thought about that too, and I don't know if the other boats that are with him are at the shore or if they go out or not. But I think the way you're reading it is possible. So it could be that they're all there together. Um, here's what we should do. We have two other passages for this segment, so we should move on to the next two. But, but there'll be more time to bring in because all of these will be connected, as you will see. Uh, and, so, and so let's keep going with our next passage here. So here's what you need to know about what happens next. We're gonna go to, we're gonna jump to chapter six now. Um, and what has happened in between is that uh, Jesus lands at, um, uh, in Gennesaret, and you're right, we're in, we're in kind of unclean territory, so Jesus is going to Gentiles. There's a man with a, with a, with a there's a demon-possessed man, a man with a demon, that Jesus sends out um, the legion into the pigs, so you probably know that story. And then we fast forward, we go back into other towns. Um, there's a dead, uh, Jairus' daughter, Jesus raises his Jairus' daughter from, daughter from the dead. In the meantime, Jesus heals a woman who's had a, a bleeding disorder for a long, long time along the way. Then Jesus is rejected in his hometown. Then we get the recounting of how John the Baptist was arrested and, and beheaded. And so we go back to that story and do a flashback. Then we do the feeding of the 5,000, and that brings in some of those Moses elements there. And then we get to this next story. So, so Jesus has done all these things. And now, and, and then feeds this huge group of people, and then we get back in the boat again. And again, Mark, Mark likes these boat scenes. 
All right, so here is our next scene. And immediately he compelled his students to get into the boat and to go ahead to Bethsaida on the other side while he sends the crowd away. And after parting with them, he withdrew to the hillside to pray. And when it grew late, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. And seeing them struggling to make progress for the wind was against them, he comes to them not long before dawn, walking on the sea. And he was intending to pass by them. But seeing him walking on the sea, they thought, it's a ghost! And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them, and he says to them, take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished within themselves, for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay. So that's boat scene number two. What did you hear? In particular, what's in, was there a hand I missed? Oh, sorry, thank you, go ahead. Um, now that I heard, but I have a question. Yeah. Um, so when it, what does it say? And, and he was on the land, and he could see them. Um, okay, I, I can't find it. Let's see, seeing him walk on the sea, let's see. Seeing them struggling. Yeah, seeing them struggling, is that? Yes, okay, yeah. yes, okay. The, so, I, I mean, I know we're talking about God here, but is this like a, I'm looking at you five miles away. Yeah, does Jesus have supervision? <laughs> I don't know. I've never, I haven't thought about it before. It's an interesting question. I suppose it depends on how far out they'd gotten. It says they're in the middle, right? So, um, yeah, it's a, uh, who's, who's been to the Sea of Galilee, right? It's a, it's a big lake. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, so I suppose that's probably Mark's way of telling us Jesus is aware of things that normal people are not aware of. Yeah, that's a good insight there. Um, good. What I was going to... Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, in listening again, I heard this time he compelled them to get into the boat. <laughs> yeah. And guess where you're going again? We're going to the other side. We're going back to the other Which side. I wondered in the first text how much that played into their fear. Mm. Hey, we're going to the other side. Probably some of them knew what's on the other side, mm -hmm. where we're going, mm -hmm. you know? And so now it's like, okay, Jesus, really? We're getting in the boat again, and we're going to the other side, and look what we're going to have to go And through. sometimes other side doesn't mean Gentile territory. Sometimes other side just means another part of the, of the Jewish kind of towns of the lake. But yeah, we're, they're doing a lot of lake crossings here, and they're doing a lot of... It, things happen on the lake. The disciples grow on the lake, and we'll, and we'll especially see that in the third one. What I wanted to highlight that I imagine, because uh, I heard a few kind of reactions to this, is the very last line, which is weird, right? They didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That Mark is trying to make an explicit connection between the scene that just happened, the feeding of the 5,000, which granted we didn't read, so it's not as fresh in your minds, and, and this moment here with Jesus' ability to, to walk on the water, 
and Jesus' ability to do these things. So what, what is Mark doing there? And you'll see this is not the only time he does this. He's going to do it again in the next scene, too. That, that, excuse me, for Mark, all of these scenes are intertwined together. And again, the boat scenes matter. The boat scenes bring the, bring the identity of Jesus forward in a way that Mark, I think, is being very intentional about. Yes? Um, in the context and in the Mosaic law, the most immediate um, relative to John supposed to take vengeance and they want him to become a king and take away Herod's life for what he did and be the king and he does this, let's go away. <laughs> yeah. Later in his judgment, Herod pays it back. He's like, I don't want anything to do with it. Like, yeah, I owe it to him. And he didn't want to be a king when people say it, but when God says it. You're tapping into some really good questions here because, again, Mark is forcing us to ask, who is Jesus? And if they have these inklings, if they have these ideas, and I'm going to ask you this in a minute, that Jesus maybe is some kind of messianic figure, that Jesus is the next king of Israel, that Jesus is going to come rescue them and bring them independence again, which they haven't experienced for, for years now, hundreds maybe almost of years, depending on how you think about the, what's called the Maccabean Revolt, that, that if they have certain expectations of what kind of king, what kind of Messiah Jesus is, some of these scenes are feeding into that in ways that maybe you're going to take you in a direction that you don't expect to go, and, and so I want you to be thinking through, like, what would make Jesus a good militaristic messiah? And the things that he has done so far, the things that he's about to do. So we'll come back to that question, but I appreciate you planting that seed. Yeah, Andrew. What's the word for ghost? Uh, phantasma. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I was like, oh, it's, it's not Panuma. It's, yeah, so it's not that same spirit. No, it's, it's phant- phantasm. Yeah. So different, different word there, but interesting one. All right, something else that I want to call your attention to for this one, and then we should move on to the next passage. What's this line about he was intending to pass by them? What's going on there? Is Jesus just, he's like, hey, guys, check out my moonwalk. Like, I can, you know, like, why is he, is this, is this his, his game that he's playing there? What do you think? And it, if you're paying attention, there's a lot of theories about this one. But if you're paying attention, then maybe this special wording here, and other translations won't always do this, but I've tried to be kind of especially literal for this. Some do it, some don't. Um, that if you're thinking of that term, to pass by, and think about Old Testament moments where God passes by, then, then maybe you'll draw the connection that I think Mark is trying to draw for us. So think about Moses. When, when Moses says to God, show me your glory, and God puts him in that cleft and then says, I'm going to cause my glory to pass by you. Or if think about Elijah, who thinks that he's the only prophet left in all of Israel. Um, and then God says to him, go out and stand on the mountain because the Lord is about to pass by you. That, that many think that something important is happening here about the idea. Remember, what's the, what's the recurring question? Who is Jesus? So that Jesus is revealing something even about his identity as he intends to pass by them on the water. And that Jesus is saying something about his divine qualities, his divine identity. Yes, all the way in the back. I think this uh, ties in also to the pass by of the Passover lamb. I don't don't think so... Except insofar as 
we have just come from the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is very much connected to the Israelites in the wilderness and the bread from heaven and Jesus' ability to feed the, the crowds in a way that Moses cannot do. So there's, so there's some definite connections to that. So in that kind of very broad idea of Jesus is channeling Exodus themes here, we could say that. But I think the wording of passing over and passing by, that's probably coincidence, probably not connected there. Um, all right, there is, one of, oh, I was going to say, notice too, connected to all of this, what Jesus says when he reveals his identity to them. And this is, this is not new material if you've been around for a while, right? He says in Greek, ego eimi, I am. And in English, we translate it, you know, like we have to add an extra pronoun there because we just, we don't say I am to identify ourselves. But that's how you would say it in, in Greek. And so he says, take heart, be courageous, I am. Don't be afraid. And so probably there is a channeling of the way that God reveals God's self to Moses in, in Exodus and the way that Jesus is revealing himself to his followers here. And again, we're supposed to be hearing all of that. So, so in that sense... There are connections. All right, we should move to the third passage, and then if there are more things that you notice, we can kind of bring them all together here, but I want to make sure that we, that we work through each of these um, as best as we can. All right, so what happens in between? We're going to go to John or to Mark chapter 8, sorry. Um, and, uh, and what happens next is we get this moment where um, the elders confront Jesus and say, why do, you know, or the, the Pharisees conf confront Jesus and say, why don't, why don't your disciples follow the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And then Jesus goes um, to an area that is, again, Gentile area. He meets a Syrophoenician woman, and she asks for a healing for her um, child and, and has this line, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And then we have another feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. And I want you to notice the way that food kind of wraps its way through each of those stories. That there is a washing your hands before you eat, there is an analogy of, of, of food at a table, and then there is a literal feeding again of, of the 4,000 in this case. And then we get into a boat, because that's what Mark likes to do. He likes to get those people back into the boat so they can wrestle and work out what it is that they are learning. And this one is perhaps the most instructive. This is the one that brings everything together. So hear this one, please. And leaving them, he got in again and went to the other side. And they forgot to take bread. And except for one loaf, they did not have any with them in the boat. And he was ordering them explicitly, saying, Look out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing among themselves that they have no bread. And knowing this, he says to them, Why are you discussing that you have no bread? Do you not yet grasp or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven loaves for the 4,000, you picked up broken pieces filling how many baskets? And they said to him, Seven. And he kept saying to them, How do you not grasp it? That's the end of that boat scene there. All right, so notice what, what 
Mark has done, or what has happening here with Jesus, right? So he's bringing all of this together. He's bringing the feeding of the 5,000, bringing the feeding of the 4,000, how much bread they had and so forth, and tying it all in together with that same line about having hearts that are hardened, eyes that see, ears that hear, and so forth. So it all kind of comes connected. So let me, let me start with our normal question, then. What did you hear? Then we can unpack some things together. Yeah? What's the difference between grasp and understand? I don't, I don't think I have a literary answer that would be satisfactory to that. I think, I think in this case, I was simply looking for a word that made you stop and think for a bit. Yeah. Within the word for grasp, or within the word, the Greek word for understanding is a, is a concept of grabbing hold of or of grasping. And so I may have been channeling that a little bit, but that's, that's kind of what I was doing for that. Yes? So, again, just listening getting in the boat, going to the other side. Yeah. The other two times a storm breaks out. Yeah. No storm this time, except well, maybe in the so boat. Well, so then I'm thinking, okay, where's the storm? Is this, is this possibly the greater storm mm. in the Gospel of Mark? There is a storm, and the storm is that they have interpreted something literally, <laughs> what Jesus meant figuratively. And I love this scene. I love this scene so much because, for one, it, it's like a reminder to us that that, that even the disciples are susceptible to, mis- susceptible to misreading the words of Jesus. That Jesus is standing here, and they're sitting there maybe, and he's saying, look out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples are like, oh, it's because we didn't bring bread. Uh, he's talking about, like, should we not go to the bakeries that the Pharisees run anymore? Like, what do you think? Oh, yeah, you know. And they're trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus' literal words. And Jesus is saying, what is wrong with you? I'm not talking about bread. <laughs> Like, I'm t- these, are, these are metaphors. Get with it, people. Um, or, are you seeing and yet not seeing? Are you hearing and yet not really perceiving? And then he goes back to, and again, this is unfortunate because we had to skip this, but he goes back to the parable of the sower. And this is, he's quoting Isaiah 6 here, which is something that Jesus had already used to describe what it is that he's doing with these parables, with these stories. This is, this is what happens. The people hear, but they don't perceive. They see, but they don't understand. And their, and their hearts are hardened. And so he's asking the disciples quite directly, you too? Like, are, are your hearts also hardened? Do you not see? And then he goes through these numbers. And I think it's tempting for us to, to misread this perhaps a little bit and say, oh, it must be something to do with the numbers themselves. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's the direction that Mark is going. Now, maybe because there are some figurative numbers and, and biblical writers do like playing with numbers. And so that's a thing. So we have to be kind of aware of that. But I don't, I don't think that's exactly what's happening here with this passage. It's not about the specific numbers. It's about the fact that it happened. It's about the fact that Jesus was able to feed people when they were in need, again, in a way that Moses was unable to do. That when the people were in the wilderness, Moses said, where am I going to get enough meat to feed all these people? And God says, I'll provide. I'll provide. And Jesus is the one who provides. And that what Jesus is trying to help them appreciate, I think, is that in each of these boat scenes and kind of the stuff that happened in between the boat scenes, there are all these moments that revealed Jesus' identity. But not in the sense that he stands up and says, look at me, I'm the Messiah, everybody worship me. But in in the sense of Jesus does these things that, that show the power that he has and who he is and what he is kind of capable of and therefore where, you know, where the story is going to go soon or later. 
um, that, that the disciples are clearly missing and that in a sense Mark is expecting you to miss too, that you're, you're brought into this boat with them and at the end when Jesus says, how do you not grasp it? You're like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to understand yet. Like what, what is the, what, what am I supposed to understand about the, the, the bread and the, and the loaves and all of that? So, all right, how about in the back and then over here? Yeah. Um, it, because if they talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, there's growth there, but they're looking at the wrong thing, and Jesus is trying to say, look at the abundance you get with me. Yeah, well, and that's a common kind of part of the leaven figure metaphor, right, is this thing that spreads around, and so what is what is spreading here? So, yeah. I, when I'm hearing it, I hear almost the, the exasperation. <laughs> yeah. How many times have I said this to you? What if I ever not? Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like he's telling him, what if I ever not taking care of what you needed? Have you not been paying attention? Like, have you not been around? Have you not seen the things that have been happening? And so that's what I want. So let me come back to that question. I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, let me come back to that question. So what are the things that if you, imagine that you are a Jew in the first century, you're one of these followers of Jesus, and you're hoping for a kind of, a militaristic messiah or a kingly messiah or some kind of messiah who's going to lead uh, a battle against the Romans to, you know, um, to defeat them and gain your independence again. What are the things, and this is where I'm drawing on your kind of awareness of Mark a little bit, what are the things that Jesus has done up to this point that would make him a really good candidate for that? What are some things that you can think of? Okay, raising the dead. That's a pretty good one. If, if there's a person who can raise people back from the dead, I want that person at the head of my, you know, battle campaign. Yeah. Here he's talking about a strong supply line. Uh, right? This guy can make food out of nothing. What else? He can control the weather, right? Like, we're not even going to fight this battle. I'm just going to have a blizzard hit the other side, and we'll be good to go. And there are others that we could bring in, but, but this, is, this is the point that Mark is kind of building almost a false picture for you in a sense. Mark is giving you all these moments to say, look, here's this amazing guy who's come on the scene and think about the military campaign that he is about to enact, the ways that he is going to destroy the other side and the power that he has. Who is this guy? And the disciples are slowly coming to kind of an awareness of who Jesus is, but we're about to discover that who they think Jesus is, is not who Jesus is. Or at least, he's not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting and that they are imagining. All right, and so each of these scenes, this boat scene, or kind of like, the, and we've just kind of gone over it. The, the first one, he's got the power over weather. In, in Mark 6, he passes by just like God passes by. In chapter 8, he can provide for people in the wilderness in a way that Moses can't. So these are all moments that are revealing the identity of Jesus. And that's just, it's unfortunately, something we don't have time to unpack more, but it's something very interesting about the Gospel of Mark, that there is this um, kind of play, this back and forth of Jesus revealing himself, but also concealing himself, revealing and concealing. Because I'm sure you know, what does Jesus often tell the people that he heals or that he helps? Don't tell anybody. Don't go, don't go into the village, go straight home, like, don't, don't spread this. And there's, so there seems to be this idea that Jesus wants to define what it is to be a Messiah on his own terms. And that when things get too far out ahead of him, it doesn't, it's just not what he wants. And there are moments where that happens, where people tell and so much word spreads that he can't even go into the villages or the cities anymore. And so it kind of, um, it interferes with his plan. And so Jesus wants, wants to define things on his own terms, and this is Mark kind of getting us along that path. 
All right, for the sake of time, we should move on to Act 3, but we're, we're a little behind, but we're doing okay. Um, how are you all doing? Do you need a stretch break? Are we, okay, I saw, I saw one head shake no, so I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> Good. All right. So, if you need to stretch, feel free to stand up and stretch. I will not be bothered by that one. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something funny. We're going we're gonna to jump forward a little bit. Chronologically, this isn't the way we should do it. We should go, we should go to the next, we should go to Act 4. But we're going to go to um, Act 3 here because I want to show you something about Mark's structure that I think is deeply instructive and will actually help us when we do the next one, which happens earlier. But this is, this is an easier way to visualize it and appreciate it. And I love what happens here. This is one of my favorite parts of Mark. Uh, and, so, and so I want to do this one first, um, and, then we'll, and then we'll go to the next one. Um, when I was in, I guess when I was in um, seventh grade, I had this teacher. She was my favorite teacher. And, and she told us this joke. And she said to us, I'm going to tell you a joke. And this is the kind of joke that people in college tell. You want to hear a college joke? We're like, yeah, we want to hear a college joke, Mrs. Rockway. And she tells this joke, and I'm going to abbreviate it because it would take too long. It was a dumb joke. But it, basically, there's a guy who's building a house, and he's really meticulous. And then he gets to the last brick, and he's got one brick left, and he throws it up in the air. And that was the end. Well, she says, what do you think he does with it? And we said, we don't know. And she, and he throws it up in the air. And that was the end of the joke. And we're like, that was the stupidest joke. That isn't, that's not even funny. It doesn't make any sense. And she just ended it there. She stopped there, and we did whatever we did for the day. And then the very end of class, she said, OK, I have one more joke for you. Do you want to hear another joke? And we're like, not really, actually. We're not <laughs> sure. But she tells it to us anyway. And again, it's convoluted. I won't go into all the details. But the, the quick version is there are two people on a plane. They're annoying each other. One is smoking a cigar, because you could do that back in those days. And then the other one has a dog, and so they both agree that they're going to throw the cigar and the dog out of the window on the plane, and that's how they'll take care of this, um, you know, conflict. And then the plane lands, and sure enough, the dog is still there on the wing of the plane, and you wouldn't guess what it has in its mouth, and we're all like, oh, it's the cigar. And she says, no, the brick. Right? And we're like, oh! And, we, so, and that was, and I've never forgotten that, obviously, because that was seventh grade, and here I am still telling the story. Um, but I love what she did there because it was this arc that the, the, you needed the beginning to complete the end, and, and the end didn't make sense without the beginning. And Mark does this as well. Mark has this thing that um, kind of colloquially we would call uh, Mark and sandwiches. There are more technical terms for it, Mark and interpolation or interpolations or things, but I like Mark and sandwiches because it's funnier. And, and what Mark likes to do, and this is all over the text, Mark likes to begin a story but then not finish that story and then move into another story, and then go back to the first story again and finish it. And in, in certain ways, the, the beginning and the end of the first story informs how you understand the middle story. And you can't fully appreciate the middle story without the, without the bread, you might say. You can't, you can't eat the meat without the bread. And Mark wants all of them to work together as a sandwich. And if you think about, like, um, Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. This is one of those moments where the synagogue ruler shows up, they're on their way, then right in the middle, this woman with the bleeding disorder shows up, and we have that, and then we get to and finish the raising of, of Jairus' daughter. And, and so this happens uh, multiple times, and this happens here in this um, temple clearing episode in a way that I think is really instructive. One, because it sheds light on what is otherwise a really odd story, but then two, just kind of tells you about the, the mastery, the literary craft that Jesus, perhaps, and Mark is engaged in, in the way that they are unfolding the identity of Jesus and helping us to appreciate who Jesus is and therefore who we are called to be as well. So, I want to do this one, and here's how, how we'll do it. Um, I'm going to 
read each of these or recite each of these parts for us and we'll pause with each one and just like we've been doing kind of ask some questions along the way to think about what what are we hearing in this so context wise realize that we have jumped way forward in our narrative we're in chapter 11 now of mark um, Jesus has the triumphal entry has already occurred so Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem we are near the time of Passover interestingly in Mark unlike Matthew Jesus gets there he looks around but then Mark says but it was really late so he went back into Bethany for the night which is just kind of a very anticlimactic in a sense in Matthew's gospel Jesus kind of jumps straight into things in in Mark's gospel he looks around he surveys the scene and then, he, and then he retreats to Bethany for night. And now it's the next morning that we get this next scene here. So here is scene number one. Let's see how I have it. Yeah, so Mark. Mark 11. These are shorter ones. So listen and you tell me what, what you hear. And the next day, as they left from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree with leaves from a distance... He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. But coming to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. So in response, he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his students were listening. So there's our scene. So my specific question for you this is not just what did you hear, but what strikes you as odd about this story? <laughs> so one, I guess he, yeah, why didn't they, why didn't they serve him breakfast in Bethany? <laughs> there's no, there's no B&Bs in Bethany, apparently. Um, all right, what other things? They wouldn't expect ripe fruit because it wasn't quite the season. It wasn't the season for figs, so what's Jesus' problem? Like, he sounds like a little, you know, like a little kid. He sounds like my, my son sometimes. Like, I, like I, want, I want food, I want it now. Um, and, but it's not the season for figs, so why is he so mad? All right, other, other things that strike you as odd or things that are worth pointing out? Yeah. Bethany means house of figs. Okay, yeah, right, so there is the, there's the pun that is, that is happening, um, connecting here. Good, other things? Yes? Well, how's that different than they were talking about bread? <laughs> right? And, and, but that's a really good insight because what do we already know about Jesus? He can make food from nothing. He doesn't need a tree to give him food if he's hungry. And so there are these clues in this narrative that are telling us there is more than meets the eye, or more than meets the ear, maybe, if you're hearing it, um, to this story. That this story is not about the fig tree. There's something else going on here, because this is the bread of our sandwich. All right, so now we keep going. So we'll do the next one here. And they come to Jerusalem. And going into the temple, he began to drive out those selling and those buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling the doves. And he wouldn't let anyone carry a vessel through the temple. But he began to say and to teach, Isn't it written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of criminals. For the chief priests and the scholars heard this, and they began to look for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because all the crowd was stunned by his teaching. And when it was evening, they went outside of the city. Okay. 
All right, things that we could point out about this passage. Oftentimes, this passage is referred to as the cleansing of the temple. I imagine you heard that before. And you may have noticed that I'm using a slightly different wording for that, or at least back when I had that slide up, that I, that I tend to refer to it as the clearing of the temple, or as, as a colleague friend of mine you know, calls it, Jesus' temple tantrum here. Um, that that something, something odd is happening. We often will refer to this as the cleansing of the temple because we think that maybe this is about the commerce that is happening in the temple, that Jesus is really upset that, um, that they have lost the heart of worship, that they've turned the temple into some kind of marketplace or something like that. And it's not, it's not untrue, it's not wrong, but that way of describing this scene works much better for the Gospel of John than it does, say, for the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of John, there are some key elements that bring out those aspects of a marketplace and, and that kind of thing. And in the Gospel of Mark, that doesn't seem to be the primary focus. In fact, some of the things that Jesus is like driving out and overturning, those are necessary parts of the temple sacrifice system. That the way that the temple sacrifice system worked is you, when you came to offer money, you, had, you couldn't give Gentile coins. You need to exchange your coins for Jewish coins. And so the money changers are a necessary part of this system. And that if you are coming from a long way off and you can't bring animals all the way with you to sacrifice, you need to purchase those animals there at the temple to be able to make that sacrifice. And so these people selling animals are part of the temple sacrificial system. And so it's not necessarily the case that these, all these people doing the buying and the selling were automatically wrong or had kind of misunderstood what was, what was going on. That Again, there's something bigger and deeper going on here. And I, and I think, yeah, so I'll, I'll pause there, I guess. And so let's, you know, let's take a few observations and then, and then we'll keep going. Well, interesting. Uh, wouldn't let anyone carry a vessel. What's a vessel got to do with all these other things happening yeah. outside and inside the temple? It's a weird word in Greek that scholars are often confused by. And sometimes you'll see translations that just say he wouldn't let people carry anything yeah. through because we don't, we don't know what, what to do with that word. Um, my best understanding is it has to do with some kind of ritualistic part of the temple system and that what Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's stopping um, worship practices to some degree. He's interrupting worship in some way, even, even part of kind of the holy offering of certain things. But, but that's, that's one possibility of many there. So that's, it's, a, it's a strange word that we don't have a good grasp on in terms of what function it really has in the temple. All right, did I see a hand over here? Yeah, Ed? Well, the criminals. Use the word criminals. Yeah, yeah. Um, I threw that in there, again, just to kind of draw your attention to it. It's the same word that will be used later for the two people that are crucified on Jesus' right and left. But it's also a word, of course, that is connecting back to the passage that Jesus is citing here. And, and so I wanted to kind of connect all of those together. Robbers is not bad. So it's not like robbers is the wrong word or something like that. But, but I wanted you to appreciate that. I don't know. We think of robbers as like, I don't know, a special category of people who, who, who do a certain kind of theft or something like that. But this is a more general word of, of people who are rebellious or people who are um, in disobedience in some way. And so I think criminal is kind of a broader concept for that. So, yeah. Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, when they originally said these words, judgment came right away to the people because they were doing the exact same thing. By the time of Jesus, they had a stone in the temple prohibiting Gentiles to come in. 
and this was happening, all these cells, and the body of the Gentiles, for all nations to pray. They couldn't come and pray because they had these cells there. And he was saying, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah, judgment will come unto you, and, and that's when the, the temple is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, good. And he tells them about that. And so we will, um, let's, finish our th- let's finish our third <clears throat> piece of bread here, our last piece of bread, our third segment. And then let's and then let's let's bring in Isaiah and bring in Jeremiah into into this scene. So let's read one more together, and then we'll and then we'll kind of connect it all together into one odd tasting sandwich. All right, this one's short. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And remembering, Rock says to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. So a short passage there. But it brings everything together. Remember Mark has started this where Jesus curses the fig tree. Then he goes and does this temple clearing. And then we see the fig tree withered. All right. And so as has been just brought up here a moment ago, there's some key passages that you need to understand. And I'll go back here a step so that we can see them that Jesus is citing, um, where he cites Isaiah 56, and then he cites Jeremiah 7. And I don't have that on the slide, but I, but I want to read Jeremiah 7 to you, because I want you to appreciate the context here, and I think we've got the time to do it. Um, Isaiah 56 is this post-exile moment it's, an, it's, it's a vision of, of the Jews coming back into their, into their temple again and the temple being transformed into a place that is now welcoming for outsiders. But that has not happened. And instead, so Jesus is saying, this is what it should look like. It should look like a return from exile where now we welcome the nations, we welcome the other people into God's kingdom, into God's home, into God's house. But instead, you've turned this into something else. And it gives them this, this one phrase, this den of robbers, this den of criminals, but they know what he's referring to. And I want to read you this whole passage, or at least the beginning parts of it, because what I want you to appreciate is this is one of those moments where if you aren't aware of what's happening in the, in the text and in their world and kind of the background that comes along with these passages, then you're going to miss things. And you're not going to appreciate what, what it is that they would hear at this moment. So you have to put yourself into the place of, a, you know, of, a, of an Israelite priest who knows his Bible well. And so when he hears this line on Jesus' lips, he knows exactly where Jesus has put him. He has put him into Jer- Jeremiah 7 and the context of Jeremiah 7. So I'm going to read this to you. And similarly, Jeremiah is standing at the temple gate, standing right in front of the house of the Lord, calling out to people as they come in. And these are the things that Jeremiah is saying. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you people of Judah that enter these gates and who worship Yahweh, who worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, and if you truly act justly with one another, and if you do not oppress the alien, 
the orphan and the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then, then I will dwell with you in this place and in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. But, but here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then, and then, come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're safe. Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of criminals in your sight? And there's the line. You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, says Yahweh, when I spoke to you persistently, and you did not listen when I called you, and you didn't listen and didn't answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave you and to your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all of your kinsfolk and the offspring of Ephraim. So when Jesus says this one line, you've made this place a den of robbers, a den of criminals. The Jews in, who are here, you know, the priests that are listening right there, they hear this whole passage. They hear all of Jeremiah 7. And where are we in Jeremiah 7? We are right before the Babylonians come and do what? Level the temple, destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, bring the Jews into exile. And so Jesus is saying, we are standing on the brink of something. We are right back in Jeremiah 7. All right, so now you do for me. I'm going to make you do the work here. Connect all of this together. What is the fig tree and the temple clearing and then the fig withering, the fig tree withering, what does that have to do with each other? How is it all connected? Yeah. The fig tree and the temple are supposed to serve a specific purpose. The fig tree is not serving its purpose. It's not providing food. It looks leafy. The temple, the temple is not being used for the purpose it was intended to be used for. Yeah. And so Jesus is going, nah, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> and I'm going to destroy this because if you're not going to use it the way it's supposed to be used, I'm going to get rid of it and you and we'll figure something else out. Again, you can go back to the fig tree. This is what happens when you don't when you don't use what I've given you for the purpose it's intended to be used for. Yeah. The fig tree is a living parable. The fig tree is not a, it's not about food. It's not that Jesus is hungry. We we already figured out Jesus can make food when he wants. The fig tree is representative of the temple itself. And so the fig tree looks leafy. It looks like it's green. It looks like it should be producing something, but, it's, but it is representative of the fact that the temple, although it's hustling and bustling and stuff is going on, that something is dead inside. Something is empty inside. The, the kind of worship that God is asking for is not taking place. And so Jesus clears the temple twice, in a sense, right? I mean, he clears it literally because he flips over tables and he turns things. And what he's doing there is not so much saying like, oh, I'm really mad at what you're doing here. What he's saying is, what I'm doing is what is about to happen to this place. 
that I am, I am enacting the coming destruction. And this little bit of me kind of flipping over things and throwing some doves around, this is just a foretaste of what the Romans are about to do to you. If you don't listen, if you don't come back to God, and you run into this place and you say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we're safe. We can do anything we want because God would never destroy the temple. And Jesus is saying, no, God has and God will. And so the fig tree becomes a symbol, becomes what the temple is about to happen, or what's about to happen to the temple, that the fig tree withers to its root. And this is about the year 30 or so that this is happening. Excuse me, within 40 years, so the temple will be destroyed by the Romans. The Romans will come in and they will level the temple and they will level Jerusalem. And, and what Jesus is doing here is, and what Mark is kind of helping us set up and understand, is this really artistic framework of, of symbolism, right? Of, of kind of figurative moments where Jesus is alerting them to the fact that God is displeased and this is the coming destruction. They're, they're back in Jeremiah 7 again and they need to turn. They need to repent. They need to pay attention to the good news. That was back in chapter 1, right? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has broken in. So pay attention here. Turn now while you can. All right. Reflections, thoughts, things that you noticed. Anything we want to go? Yeah, do for that. Yeah. yeah um, I think um, the Jews are treating the temple as a private club because all this merchandising and money changing was done in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And here Jesus is saying, my house is called a house of prayer for all nations. So they're excluding the Gentiles yes. by doing this. They're saying, you can't pray there because we're doing business for the Jewish people. And uh, I think that exclusivity angered Jesus very deeply. Um, it's not just the religion, but it's the attitude that it's all about us. I think you're right. Yeah, very much so. That G Jesus has a kingdom vision. There's this kingdom that is erupting into our world is an expansive kingdom that is breaking down the boundaries between Jews and Gentiles in a way that many Jews of Jesus' day were uncomfortable with. And, and Jesus is doing that. Jesus is trying to expand those borders, those boundaries, in a way to say, God is, God is letting more people in, and you are, you are closing off the doors. And so, yes, I, I fully agree with that. Good. Other observations or things that, that you have noticed? Yeah, Ed. I have a question, uh, yeah. a general question uh, about Mark. Uh, Peter and John and Matthew were there. They were in the boat. Mark not likely Yeah, that's a very nice question. Um, there are, so, so Mark as a gospel doesn't tell us its origin. And so one, so, one could, so one way to answer that is to say we don't know and apparently it wasn't important for us to know or, or Mark, Mark would have told us. But I can also tell you what the earliest church traditions are on that. And so we have uh, an early figure by the name of Papias or Papias who's writing around the turn of the first century, so into like the 110s, 120s or so, um, who relates to us this idea that Mark was not an eyewitness to Jesus, in fact, explicitly not an eyewitness to Jesus, but that he followed Peter around 
and that he would write down Peter's stories, basically. He'd write down Peter's preachings, and Pavey says he interpreted Peter. We don't know if that means that he translated him or if Peter was hard to understand, so he, you know, he explained what Peter was talking about. Um, but, but so Mark would write down stuff that Peter said. So the earliest tr- church tradition that we have is that the Gospel of Mark is rooted in the eyewitness testimony of Peter, but not of Mark. And it's interesting, just as a quick aside, right, that if, I don't know, if you're going to make stuff up about early Christians and, and where we get these stories, probably you wouldn't make up the idea that, hey, this guy didn't know Jesus personally and, you know, didn't actually see any of this happen, but he knew a guy who knew him, and so we can, we can trust this. Like, so I put a little bit of weight into that, but that's, that's what it is, you know, for what it is worth, that's, that's what we have there. Ultimately, we don't know. Yes? Jesus sent the disciples to teach, not to write. So whenever they're going to die, they need to have a Paul Timothy, Peter Mark, to write what's, so it's not forgiven. The old tradition is not forgiven, so they, that's why it's written in Hebrew, in uh, um, Greek. Um, people have problems with uh, love in Greek. Jesus never said love in Greek one time. He always said love in Hebrew. And when we try to uh, get the meaning of the Greek, we found in problems, but Somebody had to write it so they don't forget the oral tradition. That's how the rabbis pass on the tradition, the Mishnah, the Talmud. Mm-hmm. Then later they had to write it to, to keep it so they don't forget it. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so let me give you this last picture here, and then we can um, figure out where we are. What I want you to appreciate is this framework that Mark does here. You should write all this down. No, don't. Um, this, this kind of like chain link that he's doing, this, this sandwiching idea this is all over the text, and you can find this in kind of four or five different really explicit places, but you can, you can actually um, outline the entire gospel this way, in some ways, of Mark planting seeds that then come to fruition at the end, and we'll see this two more times now. And so this is why I started with, with this story, because the next two that we look at, I think, will, will pay dividends for having started it this way. All right, we're, we're doing pretty good. Would you all like a break? Would a five-minute kind of stretch break be a good? All right, I saw a yes nod this time. Um, so let's do this. Let's take a five-minute break. It's 3.34. So let's come back at 3.40, and we'll get started again. All right, it is 3.40. We are going to get started. We've got 35 minutes. Is that right? Yeah, 20 plus 15. So we're behind. That's normal for me. Um, so we'll probably do 15 minutes on this one, 15 minutes on the next one, so that we can wrap things up, uh, and then maybe have a few minutes of transition and break in between. So Act 4, Following Blind, is what I've called this one. And now realize that we're, that we're going backwards in time, because we jumped ahead to Chapter 11, so we got to the triumphal entry, and I did that so that I could help you understand this, frame, this framing device that Mark loves to do, where he starts a story, and then starts another story, and then finishes the first story. Because he does that, in fact, all over the place, and he does it in chapters 8 through 10 as well, but it's a bigger version. But I wanted to explain the small version of it so that you could see it in the big version. So we're going backwards, and maybe that wasn't a good choice, but I've made it already. So here we are. Um, and we're going to talk about discipleship. We're going to talk about what it means to be Jesus' follower. And again, we're going to answer that question that Mark has been forcing us to ask, who is Jesus? We're going to get the answer, but as I've hinted at, it's going to be a different answer than what we were expecting, perhaps, or the way that Mark has been leading us in little seeds he's been dropping. So the first scene we have is Mark chapter 8. 
and there's a healing of somebody. And I want you to hear this, and I'm going to ask you at the end of this, just like with the fig tree, what is odd about this story? What is odd about this story? Okay, here we go. And they come to Bethsaida, and they bring him a blind man and beg him to touch him. And taking hold of the blind man's hand, he led him outside of the village. And after spitting into his eyes and placing his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And looking up, he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And then he placed his hands on his eyes again. And he stared hard. And his sight was restored. And he looked at everything more clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't even go into the village. All right, we'll pause there and I'll ask you this question. What strikes you as odd about this story? Multiple things, yes. Um, it's almost like he tried to do a miracle and messed it up and then tried again. So much so <laughs> that Matthew and Luke do not include this story. <clears throat> Maybe that's coincidence. But Matthew and Luke, you know, end up using a lot of the material that Mark has, or there's an overlap. Um, but not this one. Uh, this one makes people a little uncomfortable because, yeah, it sounds a little bit like Jesus couldn't couldn't pull it off. Like he could he couldn't heal the guy, and it took two tries to heal him, and that's a little embarrassing. So let's not tell that story about Jesus. But I would suggest to you that just like the fig tree, there's something much deeper going on here, and there's something that's quite intentional about the way that Mark is framing these narratives. And this is actually just the beginning of a very, very big sandwich that Mark is, is crafting, is assembling for us to appreciate. All right, any other things that you wanted to point out about this passage? Yes? It makes me think this blind man wasn't blind from birth and he knew what a tree was. Right? I've often had that same thought. How do we know what trees look like? Uh, so so maybe, he, um, maybe he could see once. Yeah, good. Other other observations, yes. He's very physical with this man. Yeah. Blind. Right. Spits in his eyes, puts his hands on him, and and we know that Jesus is capable of doing things remotely, but this one he wants to get his hands dirty in for some reason, which is interesting. Yeah. He's taking him outside of that village mm -hmm. instead of just healing him right there. Yeah. He's already there. Why not just do it right there? But no, he leads him by the hand. He's a blind man, so he's this is a long walk, right? You're leading him, leading him, leading. And then does it, and then what does he say to him at the end? Don't even go back. <laughs> Don't go to the village. I, and again, it's all about this revealing, concealing, that Jesus wants his identity known, but he wants it known in a particular way, and this is the culminating moment of that. So this brings us now to our next scene. So let me do the next one here. So listen, and then we'll ask the same question. And this is right on, this is the very next thing that happens. And Jesus and his students went out to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his students, who do people say that I am? And they said, John the washer, and others Elijah, and, and others one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but you, who do you say I am? Rock answers him, you're the anointed one. But he reprimanded him to speak to no one 
about him. We'll pause there for a moment. And I said him, but it's actually them, so I apologize. I flubbed that one. Uh, he reprimanded them to say no, to, to speak to no one. What did you hear? Observations? Yes. He started the gospel with Isaiah. Most of the gospels based on Isaiah. Mm -hmm. And Isaiah said that the Messiah will come healing blind. Nobody else could do these miracles but the Messiah. Yeah. And um, precisely in the region around Galilee. That's why he says in the name of the city when he starts in both. Because he will be doing what Isaiah said the Messiah will be doing. Thank you. Yes, and so remember this question that Mark has been forcing us to ask all along. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We get our answer. And, and what you should be doing right now is cheering. Three cheers for Peter. Peter, or rock as I call him, right? Three cheers for the rock. Like he is, he has figured it out. Finally, you are the anointed one. And if that word doesn't mean much to you, and I had struggled with how to translate this one too. Uh, we could call him the chosen one maybe if, you're, you, know, if you like that, that series. Um, but the... That this, this idea of anointing has to do with having, it's the same word in, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach, in, in Greek it's Christos, uh, and so we sometimes translate it as Messiah or Christ, but literally it has to do with having oil poured over you as a way of setting you apart for a specific role, usually, at least in the context that we're talking about, as the role of king. But it could also be as a, a prophetic role or some kind of other role that you are anointed, you're set apart in some way. And so for, for Peter, for Rock, to finally confess, to finally get it, to say, oh, I see it now, Jesus. It's you, you. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's coming. And oh, man, this, oh, this is going to be good because you can control the world. Oh, and you, can, and you can bring back the dead and you can heal the diseases and this is going to be the best Messiah. Like, oh, man, I, am, I joined the right club. Like, like Peter, it's all just kind of becoming clear to Peter at this moment. And then for you, as a reader, in a sense, like it should also be coming clear to you. And you're like, oh, yeah, he is. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. This is, this is, where, this is where this story is going until we get to the next scene. And then we realize that Peter doesn't know what he knows. He doesn't know what he doesn't know and doesn't know what he thinks he knows. So let's, let's read this next one here. And he began to teach them that it's necessary for the son of humanity to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scholars and to be killed. And after three days to rise again. Now he was speaking the word openly, <laughs> but taking him aside, rock began to reprimand him. But turning around and seeing his students, he reprimanded Rock and says, Get behind me, you accuser, for you're not considering God's affairs but human affairs. And calling for the crowd along with his students, he said to them, If any want to come behind me, they must deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life because of me and the good news will save it. 
Okay. So what we discover here is that, I love this scene, right? Is that Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, and internally you're saying, yes, he gets it. And then the next thing that Jesus does is tell him what kind of Messiah he is. I'm not the kind of Messiah that you are expecting, Peter. I am a Messiah who is going to suffer, and who is going to be rejected, and who is going to die, and raised from the dead. He doesn't leave that part out, but they don't seem to hear that part ever t- <laughs> whenever he says it. And, and so then Peter, and this is my paraphrase, or Peter kind of says, oh, Jesus, could I talk to you here in the corner for a second? I don't think you understood what I just said. I just said that you're the Messiah. The Messiah means that you win. The Messiah means that we take over. The Messiah means that the, the, the victory is yours. And then, and then Jesus says, Peter, let me bring you back into the crowd here for a moment. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. You have this worldly idea in mind, but I have divine things in mind. That that Peter can only see what, what, what his powerful kind of kingdom, you know, world kingdom-centric focused idea of what a, of what a Messiah would be is. And Jesus is trying to reorient that. And so from this point forward, and you notice that we have this line, um, and it was the section before this one, I think, um, on the way, verse 27, on the way. That, that This is actually a, a, a kind of running theme in Mark. Four times this will show up where, where Jesus is on the way. And you might remember maybe from the book of Acts that later this becomes a way even of describing Christianity, that, that they are the people of the way. And that, that along the way that Jesus is trying to say, okay, now let me, let me show you what it means to be on my way. Let me show you what it means to be on the path that I am on. Because this gospel has been bringing us somewhere all along, and you thought it was going one direction. You thought it was going to this victorious Messiah who was going to redeem the people through, through some kind of military might or victory or become the new king of Israel somehow. But now it suddenly takes a sharp turn in chapter 8. And even though they understand that Jesus is Messiah, they don't understand what kind of Messiah he is. And this happens two more times, so three times total, in this section of chapter 8 through chapter 10. We don't have the time to go over these other two, so I already knew that we wouldn't. So I've just summarized them here for you. But, but what happens is that two more times Jesus predicts his suffering and his rejection and his death. And then each time, and it's just it's like clockwork, each time the disciples do something stupid that demonstrates that they have no idea what he's talking about, that they have totally misunderstood his meaning. And so he'll say it again, and then right, so in chapter 9 he does it again, and then the next thing that we find out is the disciples have been on the way, so they're on the way, but they're arguing on the way, and they're arguing about who's greatest, who's first. And, and, and Jesus is like, what? <laughs> do you not yet grasp? Like, do, Are your hearts still hard? How, how are you not hearing the things that I'm saying, um, and, and he says, anyone who wants to be first in this kingdom shall be last of all and servant of all. And we're learning that Jesus has an upside down kingdom. That yeah, he is a king. That's what Messiah means. That's what anointed one means. He is a king, but the kingdom is reversed. And so we're beginning to get that picture. And then again, he does it in chapter 10, where he tells them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And then what happens next is we discover that James and John come and have a special request for him. And it is, 
we want to sit at your right and your left in your glory. And, and what they mean is, Jesus, when you take your throne in your kingdom, we want to be your right hand and left hand guys. We want to be number one and number number two and number three in this in this kingdom that you are ushering in, in this kind of new world order that we think that you're starting. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. You, you don't understand. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be, and you know, if we use my phrase, can you be washed with the washing that I'll be washed with? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And these are known metaphors for suffering. These are suffering images. Jesus says, can, can you go through this suffering? And to their credit, they say yes. And to Jesus' credit, or to their eventual credit, Jesus says, and you will. You will, and they do, but not in this story, because what happens when Jesus is crucified? There is somebody on his right and his left, but who is it? Is it James and John? Nope, it's not James and John, it's two criminals, that same word that we've already talked about. It's these criminals that are there. And just as a quick aside, even though I don't have the time to do it, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Ed, Ed brought up the, um, the question of who wrote this, and then, and then in the break he asked me, what about the guy who runs away naked? And, and so I, I imagine that, that many of you had that same thought because that's kind of a common tradition that maybe the author inserts himself into the story as, as the guy who runs away naked at the arrest of Jesus. It's a great story. I, I love the story. I don't think probably it's the author of Mark, but it actually does have deep instructive value because what did we just learn? What does it take to be a follower of Jesus? What do you need to do? Give up everything to follow Jesus. What does this guy do in the middle of the arrest? He gives up everything. <laughs> to run away from Jesus. Uh, and so he is the antithesis, he is the opposite of what a true disciple is. That, that the author of Mark, or maybe it, is, maybe it is the author of Mark, who knows, right? But the author of Mark is, is putting this funny story, in which again, Matthew and Luke leave out. You know, they, 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 don't, they don't include some of these more embarrassing moments um, that Mark likes to throw in. But, but Mark is putting this in, I think, to teach us about what discipleship is. Discipleship is giving up everything, and this guy does the opposite of that to be able to um, save himself instead. And so, again, in this moment, um, coming back to James and John's request, Jesus then reminds them, okay, you know the normal way that people operate, the kingdoms of this world, the way the Gentiles do, they lord it over each other, but not so with you, he says. Whoever wants to be in a high place among you has to be your servant. Whoever wants to be first shall be last, just like he said. And then he says this about himself. Even the son of humanity, and you probably caught that I changed the son of man to son of humanity, just a, just a way of helping you understand that Jesus is talking about, about being a human being. And there's this contrast with son of God and son of man there, but we can leave that for a moment. Even, even the son of man, he says, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and so again, Jesus is trying to lay out what this kind of kingdom is. And then we get to our last and final scene of this section. And lo and behold, it's another healing. And you may find some resonances with the scene that we did at the beginning. So let me read this one to you. And they come to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho, along with his students and a considerable crowd, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar was sitting along the way. 
And after hearing that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And many reprimanded him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And stopping, Jesus said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, rise, he's calling you. And throwing off his outer garment, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabuni, I want to see again. And Jesus said to him, Go, your trust has saved you. And immediately he saw again. And he began following him on the way. All right, so you do the work for me. Connect these scenes together. Why start with a blind man, end with a blind man, and have these three moments in between? What is, what is Jesus doing? What is Mark doing in this intentional structure that is happening here? What do you think? I think you go back to the question Jesus asked in the first healing. Can you see anything? <laughs> That's sort of odd for Jesus in doing a miracle. Right? Yeah, it's right? Like, How's it working so far? Well so far. <laughs> but then the other stories relay that they don't really see. They, they see don't. a little. Uh-huh. They're not getting it yet. This guy's willing to give up everything. Yes. Precisely. Right? So the, the disciples are just as blind as these people that need healing, but they don't know that they're blind. And they, they think they see. They see that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's partly right. And so what? They see, but people are like trees walking around. They don't see fully. They don't see what kind of Messiah he is. And, and so Jesus or Mark, depending on how you think, how far this back this goes exactly, right? That again, these are living parables. That these are, these are moments that are happening. It doesn't mean that they're not you know, taking place in reality. I don't mean that, but I mean to say that, that they have meaning beyond just the surface meaning. This isn't just a healing of a blind man. This blind man is representative of the disciples. Just like the fig tree was representative of what's happening or what will happen to the temple, these, these blind men that are on each side of this, is again, that's that sandwich, that framework, that in between we discover actually the really blind people are the disciples themselves. They're the ones who need healing. They're the ones who think they see, but they don't. And that every time that Jesus gives them a description of what it means to be his follower and who he really is, what kind of disciple, what kind of Messiah he is and what kind of disciple he's expecting, every time he does that, they get it wrong. And the first time Peter reprimands him, Peter rebukes him and says, no. And the next time they argue about who's greatest. And the third time, James and John say, hey, we want to be number one and number two, number one, number two and number three and, you know, in, your, in your kingdom. Um, and, and so each time they don't get it and they show that they are, they are blind and they need sight. And that's the, that's the kind of the power. And this is why I'm, I'm hoping to work through this with you is that when you understand the framework of what a gospel writer is doing and, and again, the literary artistry that is being invoked here, that these are more than just straightforward stories. This isn't just kind of rambling um, you know, assembling of, of different fun stories about Jesus. Oh, well, let's throw in that one about the naked guy. You know, like these, there's, there's craft here. There is, there is intentionality here. And that when you see all of that juxtaposed together, you can begin then to know what, what you need to do for yourself as a disciple of Jesus. And, and this is where it culminates for me that the disciples 
can't accept the reality of who Jesus is without also accepting the reality, the necessity of his suffering and his death and the fact that that is their path too and that is our path too. But that is where this story is going and that's the implication of this, that, that it's not enough to know Jesus' title. We have to know what that title means and what it involves and what it means to be on the way on the way of Jesus in the way that this blind man gets on the way, right? Are you willing to go all the way to the end of this gospel? Are you willing to go all the way to the cross? This is a hard teaching. This is, this is hard stuff. And Mark is trying to bring you there. In fact, Mark kind of tricks you into getting there because he gets you to chapter 8 and he says, oh, look how great Jesus is. Oh, and did you see where this is going? Cross, suffering, difficulty, trial. But this is part of the story. How far will you follow? All right, we are nearly at the end of our time. We've got like 10 minutes or so, but that'll be enough just to kind of briefly do our, our very last story here. And I apologize that we won't be able to unpack it probably to the full um, weight that I would like to. Um, I can stick around for a few minutes uh, if there are going to be uh, leftover questions, which there may be for this, because this is some tricky stuff here. But I, I will make sure that we end on time, at least so that if you need to go, you can go. Um, we're at the end here, and as you may be aware, the manuscript evidence of the Gospel of Mark is varied. And this can be very dissettling, kind of unsettling, kind of um, difficult. And so if this is your first introduction to this, I, I apologize that I haven't left enough time to really unpack it to the degree that, that it needs to be unpacked. But what you should be aware of is that the way that we have these texts at all Right, is that people had to physically write them out by hand. And that for the first 1,500 years or 1,400 years of Christianity, that's the only way that you ever got access to a text. And again, remember the whole point of this class is that most of the time people were not reading these texts at all. They were hearing these texts read in church. And so we live in a print culture which changes everything, and we think of kind of a stable text. But in their world, everything is handwritten. And if you've had the experience of having to type something that you were kind of copying or something, you know that, that people make mistakes or things change. And basically, manuscripts are different from each other. No two Greek manuscripts are exactly the same. Most of the time, like 99.9% .9 of the time, these differences don't make a lot of difference in terms of the way that we translate or in terms of the meaning. And, and even, I would say, in the few times where the meaning changes, the fundamental core of the gospel message does not change. So I want you to appreciate and know that, that the manuscript differences are interesting and they are real and they are true and you should know that, that they're, you know, these are artifacts, these are, this is evidence, but you don't need to be then afraid that, that the, the heart of the gospel is at stake somehow. And even kind of the most, um, I don't know, the, the kind of reluctant, what you call text critics, the people who kind of study this for a living and who kind of place the least amount of credence in the text, would probably, I would say, agree that the core message of the text in, a, in the grand scheme of things is not changed by these. At the same time, sometimes they make a big difference, and one of the places where they make a big difference is how you read the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And in, in sum, there are four ways, but really three, I would say three ways that the Gospel of Mark ends. There are manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that end right at verse 8. And we'll read it in a second so you know what that is. But it's the moment where the women leave the empty tomb, and it's a weird place to end. It says, they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. The end. 
What it seems like happened, so our, our, our earliest two Greek manuscripts, and we have early Latin and early Syriac manuscripts. Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic. Um, our very earliest Greek manuscripts and a few of our early other manuscripts end right there. What it seems like happened, at least this is probably the best explanation to explain the rest of what we see, is that early readers were dissatisfied with that, as maybe you are a little bit, or you might be if I read it to you in just a second. And so probably your own Bible has a note about this. If you read carefully, you'll see that there's either a footnote or a very big note right here that says the earliest manuscripts don't have this. But it looks like what happened is some early Christians said, this doesn't feel like a good ending to me. Let's add something more. Like I know that there's more to this story. And so they added something more. And they added it really early, like second century, because we have early Christians who are referring to this as early as the 170s or so, 170s, 180s. So this is an old ending. It's not something that they wrote a few years ago. This is, this is an ending that has existed for a long time. And today, the bulk of the manuscripts actually have this longer ending that goes from verses 9 all the way through 20, the one that you're more used to and the one that shows up in your Bibles. But it's actually not the only ending that exists. There's a handful of manuscripts that have yet another ending, a shorter ending, that goes to 16.8 and then has this kind of basically like a one-line way of wrapping everything up. And the very fact that this shorter ending exists, and I have some pictures here for you if you want, because, you know, who doesn't love looking at ancient manuscripts? Um, that the, the very fact that this short ending exists at all probably tells us not that it's original, but that what happened was people were dissatisfied with the ending, and so they wrote multiple endings. Some people had this longer one. Some people said, let's go with the shorter one. And, and what that means is, as best as we can reconstruct, probably the Gospel of Mark ended at 16.8, or at least the earliest version of Mark that we can get access to. Maybe it had a different ending at some other point. But the earliest Gospel of Mark that we can get access to probably ended at 16.8. And that changes the way that you hear the story in certain significant ways. But let me emphasize one last time. It doesn't change the resurrection. Jesus is resurrected in the Gospel of Mark whether you end at 16.8 or whether you go all the way to verse 20. The tomb is still empty. So it doesn't change the fundamental story. But it does change how you hear the story. And I think I'm going to um, do something here. For the sake of time, well, let's see. How can we do this? I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll go ahead and read both because I think it won't, it won't be meaningful otherwise. Well, there's no, there's no easy way to do it. All right. Um, if I had more time, what I was going to do is read all of, of 1 through 20 for you. And we talk about what we, you know, what we hear at the end of that. And, and then we'd go back and just read 1 through 8 together. And I don't know that, that we have time to do that um, to the degree that I would have liked for us to do it. Um, and so let's, let's just read 1 through 8 here. And we'll, and we'll pause here. And I assume that you know 9 through 20, at least to some degree. And you can go back and read it. And we can contrast the two kind of knowing what's in that longer ending, even without having read it together. I think that'll be the best way to do it. So, um, so let me read this to you now, and you hear this ending, and imagine for a moment that this is how the gospel ends, that this is, this is where the story wraps up. And when the Sabbath was over, 
Mary the Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, bought fragrant oils with which to go and anoint him. So very early on the first day of the week, they come upon the tomb once the sun had risen. Now, they'd been saying to each other, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? But looking up, they find that the stone, which was extremely large, had been rolled away. And going into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, wearing a white robe. And they were alarmed. But he says to them, don't be alarmed. You're seeking Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's been raised up. He's not here. Look, the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. And leaving, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. What does that do to you? Imagine for a moment, and again, if we had more time, we'd, we'd kind of look at the longer ending and you'd be, you know, we'd talk about this kind of more complete version that, that kind of wraps everything up. And, and I'll just I'll put it for you here just so you can maybe remind yourself what's, what's in it. We meet Mary Magdalene again. Um, Jesus appears to, to different people on the road. We kind of get summaries of these different stories. Jesus sends them out into the world and so forth, tells them what will follow them. And we get this really nice line, and they went out, proclaimed everywhere, while the Lord worked together with them and confirmed the word through the signs that followed. So it's a very, very nice, tidy ending there. But, but now go back to this one. If you end here, what does it do for you? There's no male witnesses. Okay, one, yeah. So the men are out of the scene. So that's very interesting. Yeah, Andrew? Well, it's like if they didn't tell anyone they were hearing about it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So they didn't tell anyone, where'd the story come from? How did, how did we get this? So, that, so that's interesting. Good. What else? I saw a hand in the back. Yeah. Like the, uh, one of the healings Jesus sometimes tells people, go and tell it. Sometimes he says, don't say a word. Right. Sounds like there's a little disobedience, civil disobedience here. So. It's a weird reversal, right? This time the angel says, go tell. And what do they do? They don't tell anybody. <laughs> and so we get, it's again, it's just this lesson in discipleship here. And it's about the identity of Jesus and what we do with that. Yeah. I've always preached that it was almost like the end of Jonah because yes. there's not a resolution. The only resolution is the fact that you begin to embody that resolution for yourself. It calls for a personal resolution. Yes. And so remember the analogy that I gave you at the beginning of this class, if you can think back two hours and 13 minutes ago, <coughs> right? That, that what is the gospel of like? It's like this moving train and suddenly, whoa, here we go. And we're off and we're in the middle of the story. And what has just happened is the train is going and, and, you, just, and you just got kicked off the train, basically. But you know, the train keeps going past you. And the story keeps going, and as um, I think Andrew said, right, like, how do, we, how do we know the story? Somebody told, somebody said something to somebody, or we wouldn't have any of this. So obviously this isn't where the story really ends, but, but I think what Mark is forcing us to do is to say, but, but how will your story end? What are you going to do next? Are you, are you going to embrace this identity of Jesus as a suffering Messiah, and are you going to follow on the way? Are you going to get on this train 
anachronistic analogy, but bear with me, right? Are you going to jump on board here and follow along to the end? And think about, narratively speaking, what the angel tells them to do or where Jesus will meet them. He says, go, go back to Galilee. And if you want to think about in terms of a story, what does Galilee represent? Galilee is where this whole story started. We're in Jerusalem right now, but Galilee is, is back to chapter 1. And, and in a way, you could say this is the angel saying, go back and start the story over again. Pick up chapter 1 and reread with new eyes, with new ears, with eyes that see and ears that hear, and see if you're willing, see if you can, now that you know the identity of Jesus, see if you're willing to get on the way with him. See if you're willing to go all the way to the cross with this suffering Messiah who invites you into this new kingdom of God that is breaking into our world, but that is dangerous and that leads to difficulty also along the way. And, and what I would suggest to you is that ending here is, as was just said, is, is an invitation to you to participate in this story, and that really it doesn't end any more abruptly than it started, but it is a call to action for you to embrace the discipleship, the messiahship, in the sense that Mark has been revealing and unveiling for us all along the way. So I will stop there. There are many more things that we could say and could have gone through, but I hope that this has been helpful to you to understand and unpack and think about what it is the Gospel of Mark is doing, and I'll stick around for a few minutes if, if you have other questions. Thanks very much.